The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Father, thank you this morning that, that you cause us to dream and you cause us to move into areas that sometimes are risky and dangerous and are different for us. And so I pray this morning as we are talking about adapting that uh, we'll be people who are open to what you have for us in our lives. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, what is your worst human emotion? This is actually going to be a bit of a dialogue because I got nothing else to say. So we're going to talk. Anybody got a worst human emotion? Irritation. Irritation. Okay. Well, yeah, and you're a high school teacher, right? So you're pretty familiar with that. (laughs) Don't you ever feel sorry for your high school teachers now that you're grown? You're like, wow, I was an idiot. Um, Anybody else? Fear. Fear? Oh, okay. Yeah. It can be kind of a downer. Any of you, uh, have, you, have you noticed when you watch a scary movie during the day, you're almost okay with it? Which is the best time to watch a scary, I think the best time to watch a movie period is during the day when you walk out and it's daylight, because there's something sort of deliciously evil about watching a movie during the day, especially if it's during the week, like you should be at work, but you're watching a movie, and it seems to seem more fun, you know, like you're getting away with something. And, but when you watch a movie at night, and you're with friends, it was stupid, but when you watch a DVD scary at night in your house alone, all of a sudden it starts getting creepy, you know, the, the phone calls coming from inside the house sort of thing, you know. Anything else? Any other worse human emotion? Loneliness. Yeah, that could be a dumb. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that is a bummer. No, no doubt. I'll tell you mine. I, I think it's boredom. There's something about boredom that, that goes beyond frustration and beyond uselessness to sort of almost, it, it mocks you. There's something about boredom that says, I could be doing something else, but I'm not. Something about boredom that says, everybody else must be enjoying their lives, and I'm not, because it even mixes loneliness as well in there, and there's that sense of fear that perhaps life is passing you by. And so for me, it's always been a boredom that has been one of those, uh, those worst sort of human emotions and experiences. And I recall that as a younger guy, often telling my wife, I'm just bored at this. I want to make a change. And so, um, as she's often said, you know, we haven't been rich, but she's never, she's never been bored. Because I would come home after, a, a, you know, out of the blue and say, hey, I quit my job today. And, and uh, I wish I was kidding, but I actually have done that sometimes and, and just lived off savings. And I remember one period, I went six months surfing and camping and it was, you know, and I realized how much I didn't like surfing or camping. And, um, but, you know, when, when you're, you don't have an obligation and you're trying to figure out what to do, I was looking for a change. And so I, I took off work for six months. Kids loved it. Every day was Saturday. What do you guys want to do today? Want to go to the beach? Okay. And, uh, yeah. i tell you what else happened during that time, though. I began to think about why I was saying no to different things. In fact, there's that movie with uh, that horrible, horrible horrible actor named Jim Carrey and uh, not that I have an opinion on this film you know I think it's called Yes Man okay is it out or is just the trailers are out okay well any rate the point and there is one is that I began looking at my own kids wondering why I was saying no to things that I could just say yes to so I began to think in terms of saying yes to my own kids looking for reasons to say yes because I realized that if I was saying no I had to ask the question well why not 
And then, why am I even saying no in the first place? So I began to rethink why I was saying no to different experiences and, and to the requests of my kids to, to, to go out, to do certain things. And, and I realized how often, a lot of times, the no was just based on my own uh, in, inconvenience and didn't want them to embarrass me or do something that would be silly. And so I began to say yes to a lot of experiences. And so what else happened is that I began to say, uh, adapt to changes that happened not only in my political views, but the traditions I was raised in and other ideas. And I found myself almost in that tension of, of realizing I was becoming a different person, that I was no longer able to say that the things I once knew were always going to be correct. And I began to realize that what I had learned and been taught, even in my 30s and early 40s, wasn't going to be sufficient to keep moving forward that I had to be open to new ideas, I had to be open to, to learn, I had to be open to test to see if what I believed to be true was actually true. And that involved everything. That involved all sorts of changes. So um, many, many times I would make changes just for the sake of changing. Have you guys, uh, how many of you drive the same route to work every freaking day? You, you just, okay, you do, all right. Have you ever, yeah. <laughs> how many of you have the same thing for lunch every single week? Um, you know, you just, you just do the same thing just for the sake of doing it. Have you ever just thought of just making changes, just for making changes? I, uh, I used to commute from Whittier to Woodland Hills. It was like a two and a half hour, two hour uh, drive. And uh, I recall one day wanting to do it by side streets. And you can. you can. You can drive all the way out to the northern part of the valley in side streets, you know. It, it, you know, it was, it was six hours, but I mean, I, <laughs> I came home on a different day than I had left, but I had made it just for the change and adapt. Then there's changes that happen that are, that are positive, right? A new romance, a new job, a new opportunity, a new city, new clothes. How many of you are waiting for fall to happen so you can break out your new clothes? Yeah, I, I hear you, man. You know, I got scars there just so, you know, and... Uh, and, and by the way, I refuse to wear a scarf with a t-shirt. I always wonder, that poor guy, he's got a, a cold chest and hot arms. It, it... <laughs> stupid. Most of this talk's going to be stupid. But at any rate, the point, and there is one, is that it's okay when change happens. You can adapt to change that you want to happen or changes that are positive. But what do you do when the changes happen that are not so positive? You lose romance, you lose a job, you take a financial step backward, there's restrictions, there's limitations. What happens when the dream that you wanted to pursue falls flat and you're no longer able to do so? Or it seems like an opportunity dies. What happens when you have to adapt in situations that you don't want? When changes are bad? We're going to take a look at the story of two different people in the scriptures that had to deal with and adapt to changes that were not positive. Now, here's what I want to tell you. That if you decide to become a follower of Jesus Christ, your entire life is about change. Your entire life is about adapting to new situations. Everything about the movement of God is about change. I mean, even our, the language is about change, you know. Uh, we talk about this old term, born again, the change. Um, Becoming more and more like Jesus, another old term known as sanctification, that's change over a long period of time. Uh, transformation is a change. Repentance is a, a change. And so if you're the kind of person that, if you, because of your traditions, you believe you know everything you need to know about 
life because you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to have a hard time adapting to the changes that he will bring in your life as you follow him. Let's go to Daniel chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 1. Let's take a look at this story, verses 1 through 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Then the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to, uh, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, I want to point out that at this point, Daniel is a young man of promise. Scripture is going to describe him as a good-looking guy, smart guy, and his country is now not only an occupied nation, but he is a refugee in a foreign land. And there's nothing very good about this particular story. He is not doing well. This is not a, um, a good thing for him. There's a lot of loss of national pride. And the God that they believed in and the stories that they believed may seem like they have failed because everything about what is happening right now to him in his life is negative. Nothing about it is good. And so he lost his freedom. He lost his, he's going to lose his identity. He's going to lose a number of things that would have mattered to a person. Now we're going to go to Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Later, when the, when the anger of the king Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what she had been decreed about her. And the king's personal attendants proposed, Let's, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into a harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their beauty and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be the queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and so he followed it. Yeah, that wasn't a, a hard thing to figure out. Yeah, it's a good idea. All right, I'll do that. I'm the king. So there there was in the citadel of Susa a tribe of the uh, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named, Shem, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of this fellow, the son of Kish, who had been carried away into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadasha, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. And this girl was also named, known as Esther. And she was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai who had charge of the harem. And the girl pleased him and won his favor. And immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best palace, into the best place in the harem. Let me give you the first lesson, the first idea about adapting to situations so that there's no misunderstanding. You don't get to choose the context of your story. You don't get to choose your family. You don't get to choose your birth. You don't get to choose your race. You don't get to choose the context of where your story begins. So you don't get to choose the context. You get to choose your character. You get to choose your attitude. You get to choose your response. But we don't get the opportunity to choose the context. 
There was a film that came out earlier this year. It was called, I think it was called The Night with the King. It was supposed to be the story of Esther. And by the trailer, I didn't see the film, but by the trailer, I thought it was giving out the wrong feel for this story. Because you, you need to understand that there's nothing really romantic about the story of Esther. It's not beautiful, it's not kind, it's not good, it's not lovely. She is an orphan. Her country has been, is occupied. She, at best, has a moment of, of some family because her uncle takes her in and treats her well. Now that's been taken away from her and she is, at best, a sex slave for the king. When she's brought into the harem, it's not... This is not somebody that caught each other's eye and, oh, I think I like you, I think... You know, she's just there to please the king sexually. That's it. That's her life. So Daniel's in exile. Daniel is going to be a person who will experience three years to focus training so he can serve the purposes of a king that has insulted and ravaged his country. And Esther is now the woman of a tradition, of a, the desert god of Jehovah, of, and yet everything about her life has turned south. You follow? So neither one of them get to choose this. What they're going to choose and what they get to choose is what they're going to, how they're going to respond to the situation, how they're going to adapt to it. But if you begin to place yourself in that situation, if you're a woman, maybe you can identify with Esther. If you're, if you're the guy, maybe you can identify with Daniel. All of a sudden, you're in a situation that insults everything about your beliefs. And you don't have a choice. And all of your freedom has been ripped away from you. I guess the first question I wonder is, you know, would you use this as an excuse to stop adapting or to stop trying? It, it, it's, it's, um, it's a strange thing, but this is how reality in life works, is that your circumstances never determine the end of your story. Your character does. I mean, sooner or later, you have to stop blaming everybody and everything else for your misfortunes. I recall years ago, uh, when my kids were little, that... Uh, they had a friend. So those of you who are parents, especially if you have friends who are, who are wealthier than you and, and kids are friends, they go, how come we don't have horses? How come we don't have a pool? How can, you know, you get those questions. I see, it, it, if you're not a parent, this may not really, you might not feel this. And so I, was, I recall we were driving to church one day and I smacked my kid. No, I didn't. I pulled over and... Let me tell the story. It makes me look like a hero. So I prayed with my son and... Uh, <laughs> Didn't do that either. I, I just pulled over and I said, look, Mike, here's, here's why we don't live in the house like Dr. So-and-so. Because when, when, when I was in school, I didn't pay attention. And I, I, instead of going to college, I was chasing other opportunities. And, and so I was, you know, this was not because Dr. So-and-so stayed in school, stayed focused, saved his money, and he lived his life well. And that's why he lives where he lives. And if you want to live that life, this is what you should be doing too. And we went to church. And you know what? They never asked me again. And... Uh, Settled that issue. But see, you know, I, what, wasn't, what wasn't the truth was to somehow say, well, they had, they had opportunities that I don't have. And, and I, I have noticed this also in organizations that when anyone does well, it's never assumed that that person actually worked hard. They slept their way to the top. It's who you know, not what you do. You know, uh, they're such a kiss up and blah, blah, blah. It's never the fact that maybe they just actually worked hard. That couldn't be it. 
when are you going to stop blaming? Or when do we stop blaming others' opportunities for our lack of opportunities? Our opportunities are determined by our character. Our opportunities are determined by the decisions we make. You know, look, we don't get to choose the context of how we enter our stories, but we get to choose how we respond with the opportunities we have. Now, think of Esther. What is she going to do? How is she going to live out a God life? What about Daniel? How does he live out a God life in a situation that essentially robs him of all of his dignity? How would he advance his cause? The thing I've noticed about God's movement in our lives is that his dreams and his plans for us are ageless. They don't know race. They don't know borders. They don't know time. You know what's funny about people who, whether they're young or old, is that you can use your age as an excuse to stop. Sometimes it's used as an excuse to say, well, you should be right. What do you know? You've never been 20 before. I was once. Or if you're on the other end of the screen, what do you know? You're only 20. Or if you use that as an excuse to stop trying or stop dreaming, how can I do this? I'm only 20. Or how can I do this? I'm already 50 or 60. Dreams and plans, they don't have, they don't have a time limit on them. They're not limited by age. They're not limited by race. They're not limited by our context. They're limited by our decisions. They're limited by our character. Let's go back to Daniel for just a moment. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king ordered this fellow, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach him the language and the literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now here's what I find that interesting, is that these were young men who had lived a life of privilege, that probably took a lot of pride in their heritage, their nationalism, their ethnicity, their God, their religious system. And now all that's going to be taken away from them and says, since you're bright, since you're handsome, since you're quick to understand, we want you to serve and advance the cause of the Babylonians. And so we're going to retrain you to become Babylonian. Go back to Esther's story for just a moment. Verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. She's going to have and he's going to have an opportunity to make a decision as to what they're going to learn, what they're going to do. See, Daniel and Esther are going to both have to reinvent themselves and they're both going to have to adapt to a situation that they don't want and they would never have chosen I'll be honest, have you noticed that most followers of God tend to be rigid and strict and inflexible? Or is that just me I'm noticing, right? You know why that is, why you seem to notice that? Because they're strict and rigid and inflexible. 
And that's, I think, one of the dangers of experiencing and knowing God. It's because you assume that since you know God, that you are God. That you're never wrong. That you're always right. That all of your opinions about how to vote, how to dress, what to spend, where to live, what music, what entertainment to consume is the right one. And not only that, but you assume or we can assume that everybody else's spiritual expression is wrong. And the only one that's correct is ours. But teachability is a a fruit of humility. It's a response to humility. It's, it says, I, I don't know everything. And I don't know enough of everything to remain unteachable. Go to verse 17 of, of Daniel for just a moment. Now you would assume a guy who, who cares about God and God who cares about him would probably frustrate this process, right? Of becoming a Babylonian. Verse 17, to these four men... Young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. Go to verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. What's what's funny to me is that in this particular process, that God actually assists Daniel and these four guys, these other guys, in the process of becoming Babylonians of learning. Go to verse 12 of Esther, chapter 2. Before a girl's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. (laughs) Six months with oil of mirth and six months with perfumes and cosmetics, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shegaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Verse 15. But when the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her, and she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign. Esther decided to learn from the king's eunuch what would, what would the king like? And it came the queen. I recall my parents didn't really allow us to make fun of each other or other people. It was the lesson that was lost on us because we would do it anyways. But my mom would try to teach us that, you know, there's something to learn from everybody. And of course, being the kid, I thought, yeah, what not to do? And and she says, actually, that's right. Sometimes there is. If nothing else, you can learn what not to do. You know what's funny? I think at times we can be so conceited and so arrogant that we feel everybody has, almost nobody has anything to offer us. That there's nothing learn, nothing new to learn from someone else's life or someone else's religious expression. There is something to learn from everybody else's life. And I pointed out that, that the, the weird danger we have in becoming followers of Christ is that we just think we're so freaking right about everything. Uh, the one benefit I had back in my 30s was, was I, for three or four years, I just began reading uh, history. I always enjoyed reading history. But during those years, I focused on the history of the churches, or the Christian churches, churches in Russia, the Middle East, 
churches in Asia, European churches, even the French, uh, Christian's expression. What was always funny to me is, is how everybody thought they were right at their time. Every single group, from the Pentecostals to the Charismatics to the Baptists to, to different expressions, whether in the African-American community or the Asian community or uh, what happened in the Southern California surfing community back in the 60s, and everybody thought they were right. And, and what's funny to me is how I realized that I was falling into that trap of thinking that my expression of my faith was the only one that was valid or the best one. It had reached its peak. This is why uh, it, it's interesting to me, our, our, our friends in the Orthodox churches, what's interesting to me is that they felt that about 100 AD was the best expression of Christianity and stopped. They didn't change the icons, they didn't change the temples, they didn't change the priesthood. That This is the best, it's never gonna get any better. Stop right here. The Amish, they stopped 100 years ago, didn't they? They're going and going and going, buttons. Yeah, we can't do that, that's a little too proud. And they stopped at buttons. Zippers were, you know, just sinful for some reason. And they stopped. And now, What's strange to me is folks who claim to be moving with the rhythm and the tempo of God believe that somehow God won't change into a culture again. And we're not open to new movements and new ideas because we just think ours is the best one and the correct one. If you decide to, to live a life of dreams, you're going to have to be open to them, first of all, you're going to have to be able to adapt to different situations God will take you. And now here's the first way to learn to adapt, is understanding what is non-negotiable or a core value. I told you earlier that I began to say yes to my own kids because I realized I had to find ways to learn to say yes or look for a reason to say yes instead of saying no. And to do that, I had to find out, I had to think, what are my non-negotiables for my kids. Now, some of you are not parents yet, and, and, and you will be, and, but just think about life in general. What are your non-negotiables? If you don't know what you cannot give up, you won't give up anything. Some of you had parents that were so freaking strict that you went hog wild the second you had a chance to, didn't you? And, and I'd seen that enough in my own life to realize I, 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 you, could, you could control your kid's behavior up to a point, but I want them to be able to make a, a right decisions. See, but that meant that I also then had to know my own core values for my own life. What are you not willing to negotiate on? I had a friend that gave us a, as a great fruit metaphor that, that some followers are like coconuts. They're very hard on the, inside, on the outside and, and hollow on the inside. And some followers are more like peaches, soft and luxuri you know, attractive on the outside, but a solid core. When my wife would sometimes uh, point out behavior in my life that was a bit abrupt or harsh, you know, I would dismiss it as, well, honey, I'm a peach. Fuzzy on the outside and hard of stone. And uh, that didn't seem to work for her. And now I realize I, I do want to be a peach. I, I want to be winsome. I want to be soft and pliable and flexible. 
and not negotiate on the non-negotiables. But if you don't know what they are, you won't give up ground anywhere. You won't concede anywhere in your relationships, with your family, with your career, because you're afraid. You don't know what is the values you're supposed to hold on to and the things that you can discard. Um, I remember when I, my daughter uh, on a Saturday afternoon said, uh, Dad, I, I'm, I'm getting a tattoo. And I recall thinking, I think she was 20 or so or 21. No, wait, she was 13. She was, um, so I said, are, are you asking or are you telling me? And she says, well, I'm kind of, you're, you're feeling me out, asking, looking to see if I'm going to give you permission. I said, look, hey, you're 20. You, you want to get a tattoo, go nuts. And uh, see, but I, I know that my response a few years earlier would have been, no. And then I remember thinking, why? It's just skin. And when my kids wanted to grow their hair out differently, you know, I thought, it's just hair. And you know, when and you know especially when you're trying on, when you're younger, you're trying on different looks and, 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 and identities to find the one that's you. So now my daughter has four tattoos and still looking for herself. I just wonder, sometimes we say no to things and we say no to opportunities because we just don't want to adapt. We don't want to make a change and we don't know where our core values are. See, Daniel and Esther, they're not going to allow superficial things to be, prevent them from living out what God has for them. But they're not going to allow their core values to be changed. Let's go back to Daniel for just a moment. Daniel chapter 1, verse 6. Now remember, there's, there's four guys and it says among them were some of these, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishak, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And now God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of my lord, my king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men at your age? The king would, ha would then have my head because of you. So Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel and these guys, hey, look, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, if you're a, a vegan, you know, you're going to see this as scriptural evidence for, for your beliefs, I guess. This is not about being a vegan. You know, by the way, don't you love people who are vegetarians? They always want to tell you, I don't eat meat. And then the vegan, I don't eat you know, anything that has any kind of animal product, and then there's that weird person that says, I don't eat anything that even casts a shadow, you know? At any rate, the point is this. Look, Daniel had a name, and so did his other friends, that pointed to God, right? In the Old Testament, every name that ends with E-L speaks of God, and the names that end in I-A-H speak to Jehovah. So their names declared something about God. When they were renamed, their, their new names are going to point them to their Babylonian gods. Daniel said, all right, that's fine. Call me by a different name. I still know who I am. 
Now learn this about new situations that people will always try to paint you and identify you and label you as to who you're supposed to be or what you are. All right. Aren't you Republican? Aren't you a Democrat? Are you straight? Are you gay? Are you this? You're that? I recall one woman was mentioning to me that she was being challenged or questioned about who she was and, and it seemed to me maybe the answer lied that she was a human being. And then maybe that should be your answer. I'm a human being who's a follower of Christ. See, the name and the label didn't matter to Daniel, but the food did. Now that seems sillier, but this is important. To eat the food of the king that had been dedicated to the king and his gods was to say something about I worship or have loyalty towards this god and king. And this is where Daniel said, I can't go. So the superficial didn't matter to Daniel, but he was not going to allow his core values to be changed. This is where you have to know what your core values are. You must come to that place where you decided what your values are because that, that'll be the source of your strength. It's not unlike um, training now, isn't it? Those of you who go to the gym, those of you who drive by a gym, everything's about the core, right? Core strength. Develop your core, your center. That's where all your strength comes from. I recall years ago when I first had my back injury, the chiropractor and the doctors often talked about strengthening my abdomen muscles. That was going to help my back. Didn't seem to make sense, but it does work. So let's close this up by speaking a little bit more about adopting and adjusting, or adapting and reinventing. If you're going to be able to adapt, you've got to know who you are and who you long to be and never compromise that in your journey. You've got to know who you are, who you want to be, and don't compromise that on your journey. See, that's the challenge most of us had in terms of adapting is that we don't know who we are. We don't know what their non-negotiables are. We don't even have an idea where we want to, where, where we're headed. And so we get, we get, you know, off track easily because we're not even sure what track to be on. And the things we should let go, the things that are really don't matter, we won't. And I'll tell you why this is essential. It's essential if you care about people because you can't help people transform or process their changes unless you've been one who's able to do it yourself. You're not going to be able to help somebody process their changes unless you've been one who's been able to do it themselves. You, you can't expect others to make the changes necessary to find God. As followers, we are required to make the changes necessary to help people find God. Now, if you've been raised in the Christian tradition, you might think, oh, you've got to teach the truth, and I, I'm with you. It's non-negotiable. But I just believe what Paul says about his life. I don't think anybody can accuse Paul, whether you just study Western history or you're studying the scriptures, that Paul was a guy that was, you know, soft, or he didn't know his core values. Paul was absolutely committed to Jesus Christ and absolutely committed to humanity. But Paul was willing to be whatever it took to help someone find Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples early on in their new walk, if you follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. Now, I don't fish, but I've heard, watched a documentary once, actually watched fishing on TV, that you use different bait and different types of fishing techniques for different fish, correct? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. I'll show you how Paul lives this out. 
Though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I'm not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And to the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners won? but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. And everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Paul knew his core values and knew what mattered to him, but he also knew what was superficial and what was negotiable. And part of Part of becoming the person that God is looking for is, is the person who's willing to adapt and can adapt. And to be able to adapt, you have to know what your core values are. Paul was driven to love and serve humanity, and, and, and he could be anyone he needed to be without losing himself. A couple weeks ago in a small group setting, somebody was asking the question, well, how can I show my friends I care for them and, and not be involved in the same activities? And I, I just think, you know, if, if you're under the love of Christ and he matters to you, you're going to be able to love people without having to, to sink or to follow practices that you know are unhealthy. Now, you know, is there a, a rule that covers every situation? No. There's just the principle. I know that some of us may prefer a black and white explanation of what are the things I can do, but you don't get that as a follower of Jesus Christ. You get a principle to follow, the love of God, the love of people. And from there, we're allowed to express that as every way that's necessary to win some over. Follow God, become adaptable, fluid, and nothing will be able to stop you. Let me turn to this last passage, one I know for sure, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, or if you do call yourself a follower of Jesus, this verse is still for you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Everything about following Jesus was meant to speak about change. For some reason, as we follow Jesus, we think we just step into this new relationship, we take a stand, and we never take another step forward again. If you're the kind of person who is a follower for years, and you're stuck and you're not living out a life that's no longer exciting or adrenaline or a life of dreams, maybe it's because you're not willing to adapt to the new situation that God wants to bring you to. But if you're that person that was, well, I would love to connect to God, but I am this or I've done that, understand that the person that God means for you to be is not the person you are today or the person you were. It's still left for you and God to work out and become. To live a life of dreams, to live a life of dreams wide awake requires us to adapt. And to adapt, we need to know our core values. And the first one that we need to adopt as followers is for a love of Christ and then a love of people. Let me pray and dismiss with you guys.
our Father in heaven. I thank you that that's just not a nice phrase, but a reality. Some of us haven't known a good dad that actually cared for us and encouraged us and was there to help us along and teach us. And so maybe that seems like a tough idea to grasp, but I thank you that you do call yourself a father to the fatherless and you call us our father. That's one of your, one of the first ways you identify yourself to us as our father. But you're also in heaven and you have the ability to change us. You give us dreams, ideas. You infuse our souls with your life beyond our ability, beyond our imagination. What I pray is that you help those of us who have become rigid, young and old, to adapt. That you help us question and rethink what are those core values that we will not negotiate. What are the things that really matter? Why are we saying no? Why are we resisting changes in our life? Help us to learn to reinvent ourselves in your image. Help us to learn to adapt to new situations we may find ourselves in, whether they're losses or whether they seem to be gains. Help us to remember that in all things, it is you we wish to imitate, your principles, your teachings that we wish to practice in the hope of winning as many as possible to the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that you help us look for new methods to share the same message that your son has come to rescue and restore what has been lost and damaged. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you for your love towards us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.